Hello, and welcome to Altar of a Cowgirl. My name is Forrest Greenwell, and this is a podcast to bring you into deeper reverence, deeper relationship with the world around you, without having to buy or buy into a hundred different methods or things or special candles or incense. This is really just a place to land. Listen, be where you are, and maybe a little bit where I am too. We'll just sink into everything that the earth has to offer us. In today's episode, I'm going to be going over week two of the artist's way. If you're curious about what that is, you can listen to the little intro in our other Artist's Way episode. But basically, I'm going to read you the chapter, give you a few of my insights. I think this is a really great way to tune in. I've done the Artist's Way many, many times before. And reading it out loud is a really great way for me to get grounded in some of the lessons taken information in a way that I haven't before when you've read the same thing many times yes you pick up new things but it's also really easy to skip over the fundamentals the foundations so if you're here welcome thanks for being here and welcome to the artist's way recovering a sense of identity so here in week two Julia Cameron writes, This week addresses self-definition as a major component of your creative recovery. You may find yourself drawing new boundaries and staking out new territories as your personal needs, desires, and interests announce themselves. The essays and tools are aimed at moving you into your personal identity, a self-defined you. And so if you've kind of engaged with any of the other episodes in the podcast or any of the work that I do, you might know that a lot of what I'm interested in is building personal myths. So looking at the symbolism and the symbology of our lives, of the things that are presented to us, of the way that the world around us speaks to us at an individual level, being able to glean a sense of self, a sense of belonging from knowing that there are these niche little ways in which the universe interacts with us and that we interact with it. So I feel like that is very (laughs) weak to recovering a sense of identity. And the week starts with a little portion chaptered, a little portion chaptered, a little portion titled Going Sane. This is what Julia Cameron writes. Trusting our creativity is new behavior for many of us may feel quite threatening initially, not only to us, but also to our intimates. We may feel and look erratic. This erraticism is a normal part of getting unstuck, pulling free from the muck that has blocked us. It is important to remember that at first flush, going sane feels just like going crazy. There is a recognizable ebb and flow to the process of recovering our creative selves. As we gain strength, so will some of the attacks of self-doubt. This is normal, and we can deal with these stronger attacks when we see them as symptoms of recovery. 
common self-attacks are, okay, so I did okay this week, but it's just a temporary thing. Okay, so I got the morning pages done, but I probably did them wrong. Okay, so now I need to plan something big and do it right away. Who am I kidding? I'll never recover, not right away, and not ever. These attacks are groundless, but very convincing to ourselves. And buying into them enables us to remain stuck and victimized, just as recovering alcoholics must avoid the first drink. The recovering artist must avoid taking the first think. For us, that think is really self-doubt. I don't think this is any good. And these attacks can come from either internal or external sources. We can neutralize them once we recognize them as a sort of creative virus. And affirmations are a powerful antidote for self-hate, which commonly appears under the mask of self-doubt. Self-hate commonly appears under the mask of self-doubt. Just want to let that sink in because it is normal to have doubts about things and it is also normal to overcome our doubts about things. And hate comes from a place of fear. So when we are looking at self-hatred, we're actually asking ourselves, what is it within me that wants something that I'm scared of? And the doubt comes forward to say, no, you couldn't have that, but the hatred is, no, you don't deserve that. That's, that's my own thought on that. Now back to Julia Cameron. Early in our creative recovery, self-doubt can lure us into self-sabotage. A common form for the sabotage is showing someone our morning pages. Remember, the morning pages are private and not intended for the scrutiny of well-meaning friends. One newly unblocked writer showed his morning pages to a writer friend who was still blocked. When she critiqued them, he blocked again. Do not let your self-doubt turn into self-sabotage. Do not let your self-hatred mask the ability for self-love and the deserving for self-love. This next portion is called Poisonous Playmates. Creativity flourishes when we have a sense of safety and self-acceptance. Your artist, like a small child, is happiest when feeling a sense of security. As our artist's protective parent, we must learn to place our artist with safe companions. Toxic playmates can capsize our artist's growth. So my sidebar here is that maybe we don't need to see individuals as toxic, but simply as unhealed and remove the responsibility from our healing process to be healing others and to take that on. Um, I really think that positioning other people or ourselves or really anything as toxicity kind of does as a disservice not kind of it does do as a disservice and you don't have to believe that i i do believe personally in a form of restorative justice if you will which is to say that like the nectar was once poison and how it is that we allow ourselves on an individual level to take in and transmute the nectar or transmute the poison into nectar um it's really our own journey right so it's to say that like everything is what it is and our relationship to the isms are what we make of it so here i think it's maybe safe to say that instead of toxic playmates can capsize our artist growth maybe the yearning 
to heal and help people along a journey that we are going on can capsize our artist growth, can capsize our capacity that we're still building up, that we're still learning about. Okay, back to Julia Cameron. Not surprisingly, the most poisonous playmates for us as recovering creatives are people whose creativity is still blocked. A recovery threatens them. Sidebar, that's why I want to bring them along. As long as we're blocked, we often felt that it was arrogance and self-will to speak of ourselves as creative artists. The truth is that it was self-will to refuse to acknowledge our creativity. Of course, this rehearsal had its payoffs. We could wonder and worry about our arrogance instead of being humble enough to ask help to move through our fear. We could fantasize about art instead of doing the work. By not asking the great creator's help with our creativity, and by not seeing the great creator's hand in our creativity, we could proceed to righteously ignore our creativity and never have to take the risks of fulfilling it. Your blocked friends may still be indulging in all of these comforting self-delusions. And if they are having trouble with your recovery, they are still getting a payoff for remaining blocked. Perhaps they still get an anoretic high from the martyrdom of being blocked, or they still collect sympathy and wallow in self-pity. Perhaps they could still feel smug about thinking about how much more creative they could be than those who are out there doing it. These are unhealthy behaviors for you now. Do not expect expect your blocked friends to applaud your recovery that is like expecting your best friends from the bar to celebrate your sobriety how can they when their own drinking is something that they want to hold on to blocked friends make find your recovery disturbing you're getting unblocked raises the unsettling possibility that they too could become unblocked and move into authentic creative risks rather than bench sitting cynicism be alert to subtle sabotage from friends, as you cannot afford their well-meaning doubts right now. Their doubts will reactivate you. So be particularly alert to suggestions that you have become selfish or different. These red alert words for us, they are attempts to leverage us back into our old ways for the sake of someone else's comfort, not our own. Blocked creatives are easily manipulated by guilt. Our friends, feeling abandoned by our departure from the ranks of the blocked, may unconsciously try to guilt trip us into giving up our newly healthy habits. It is very important to understand that the time given to the morning pages is time between you and God. You best know your answers. You are your best vessel for your answers, so even if you don't feel that you exactly know them, you are the direct link, the direct source the exact right place for your answers to land. You will be led to new sources of support as you begin to support yourself. Be very careful to safeguard your newly recovering artist. Often creativity is blocked by our falling in with other people's plans for us. We want to set aside time for our creative work but feel we should do something else instead. As blocked creatives, we focus not on our responsibilities to ourselves, but on our responsibilities to others. We tend to think such behavior makes us good people. It doesn't. It makes us frustrated people. 
the essential element in nurturing our creativity lies in nurturing ourselves. Through self-nurturance, we nurture our inner connection to the creator, great creator. And through this connection, our creativity will unfold. Paths will appear for us. And we need to trust the great creator to move out in faith. Repeat. The great creator has gifted us with creativity. Our gift back is our use of it. Do not let friends, acquaintances, people squander your time. Be gentle and firm and hang tough. The best thing you can do for your friends is to be an example through your own recovery. Do not let their fears and second thoughts derail you. Soon enough, the techniques you learn will enable you to teach others. Soon enough, you will be a bridge that will allow others to cross over from self-doubt into self-expression. For right now, protect your artists by refusing to show your morning pages to interested bystanders or to share your artist date with friends. Draw a sacred circle around your recovery. Give yourself the gift of faith. Trust that you are on the right track you are. And as your recovery progresses, you will come to experience a more comfortable faith in your creator and your creator within. You will learn that it is actually easier to write than not write, paint than not paint, and so forth. You will learn to enjoy the process of being a creative channel and to surrender your need to control the results. You will discover the joy of practicing your creativity. The process, not the product, will become your focus and your own healing is the greatest message of hope for others. So before we move on to the next little part of this, which is called crazy makers, I just want to come back to draw a sacred circle around your recovery because I have a little ritual for that. So if you are a witchy person or a ritual person, this is for you. Um, And it's very simple. You need salt, a place to put said salt in a circle, on a plate, on a floor, on an altar, wherever. And something, maybe a piece of paper written on it, an almond, a a symbol for you that represents your creative recovery. And all you need to do is sit with that object, paper, flower, thing, whatever it is, and let it become a vessel or maybe even like a little horcrux for your creativity, a sacred space for it, and draw the salt around it in a clockwise circle calling upon the protection of the great creator of the elements of whatever it is that you feel connected to i like to do that salt is very purifying it's grounding it's cleansing so anything that is trying to get to that that has ill will will not be able to it keeps the intentions of my creativity clear and whole and it reminds me that i have the tools necessary very 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 simple tools to create rituals to create an altar out of the world out of my life and just create some space to say hey this thing here is just for me so i offer that as a gift to anyone who feels like they need a really tangible way to draw a sacred circle around your recovery okay 
part three of chapter two. Crazy makers. A related thing creatives do to avoid being creative is to involve themselves with crazy makers. <laughs> we all know this. We all have this. Again, language is a little outdated, so maybe we're not going to use crazy makers, but maybe we can look at it as like, ah, what's a good alternative for crazy makers? Like banana bread makers? <laughs> yeah. So crazy makers are those personalities that create storm stenters. They are often charismatic, frequently charming, highly inventive, and powerfully persuasive. And for the creative person in their vicinity, they are enormously destructive. You know the type. Charismatic, but out of control. Long on problems and short on solutions. Crazy makers are the kind of people who can take over your whole life. To fix their upsers, they are irresistible. So much to change. So many distractions. If you are involved with a crazy maker, you probably know it already, and you certainly recognize the thumbnail description in the paragraph above. Crazy makers like drama. And if they can swing it, they are the star. Everyone around them is functions a supporting cast, picking up their cues, their entrances and exits from the crazy makers, crazy whims. Some of the most profoundly destructive crazy makers I've ever encountered are themselves famous artists. They are the kind of artists that give the rest of us bad names, often larger than life. They acquire that status by feeding on the life energies of those around them. And for this reason, many of the most crazy artists in America are found surrounded by a cadre of supporters as talented as they are, but determined to subvert their own talent in the service of the crazy-making king. I am thinking of a movie set I visited several years ago. The filmmaker was one of the giants of American cinema. His stature was unmistakable, and so was his identity as a crazy maker. Given that all filmmaking is demanding, his sets are far more so. Longer hours, long bouts of paranoia, intrigue, and internecine politics. I don't know if that's how I say that word. I-N-T-E-R-N-E-C-I-N-E. Internecine? Internecine? Amid rumors that the set was bugged, this crazy maker king addressed his actors over a loudspeaker system while he, like the Wizard of Oz, secreted himself away in a large and luxuriously equipped trailer cave. Over the past two decades, I have watched many directors at work. I was married to a profoundly gifted director, and I have directed a feature myself. I have often remarked how closely a film crew resembles an extended family. In the case of this crazy maker king, the crew resembled nothing so much as an alcoholic family. The alcoholic drinker, thinker, surrounded by his tiptoeing enablers, all pretending that his outsized ego and his concomitant and its concomitant demands were normal. Wow, there's a lot of words in here that I've never actually said out loud. On that crazy maker set, the production lurched off schedule and over budget from King Baby's unreasonable demands. 
A film crew is essentially a crew of experts, and to watch these estimable experts become disheartened was a strong lesson for me in the poisonous power of crazy making. Brilliant set designers, costume designers, sound engineers, and not to mention actors, became increasingly injured as the production ran its devastating course. It was against the crazy making director's personal dramas that they struggled to create the drama that was meant to go on screen. Like all good movie people, this crew was willing to work long hours for good work. But what discouraged them was working these hours in the service of ego instead of art. The crazy making dynamic is grounded in power and so any group of people can function as an energy system to be exploited and drained. Crazy makers can be found in almost any setting and almost any art form. Fame may help to create them, but since they feed on power, any power source will do. Although quite frequently crazy makers are found amongst the rich and famous, they are common even among commoners. Right in the nuclear family, and there's a reason that we use that word, a resident crazy maker may often be found petting family member against family member, undercutting anyone's agenda but his or her own. I am thinking now of a destructive matriarch of my acquaintance. The titular head of a large and talented clan, she has devoted her extensive energies to destroying the creativity of her children. Always choosing critical moments for her sabotage, she plants her bombs to explode just as her children approach success. The daughter struggling to finish a belated college degree finds herself saddled with a student drama, a sudden drama the night before her final exam. The son with a critical job interview is gifted with a visitation just when he needs to focus the most. Do you know what the neighbors are saying about you? The crazy maker will often ask. And the beleaguered student mother will hear a horrific round of gossip that leaves her battered, facing her exam week beset by feelings of what's the use? Do you realize you're ruining your own marriage with this possible new job? And the son's hopeful career move is ashes before it begins. Whether they appear as your overbearing mother, your manic boss, your needy friend, or your stubborn spouse, the crazy makers in your life share certain destructive patterns that make them unhealthy for any sustained creative work. Crazy makers break deals and destroy schedules. They show up two days early for your wedding and expect to be waited on hand and foot. They rent a vacation cab larger and more expensive than the one agreed upon and then they expect you to foot the bill. Crazy makers expect special treatment. They suffer a wide panoply of mysterious ailments that require care and attention whenever you have a deadline looming or anything else that draws your attention from the crazy maker's demands. The crazy maker cooks her own special meal in the house full of hungry children and does nothing to feed the kids. The crazy maker is too upset to drive right after he has vented a normal verbal abuse on the heads of those around him. I'm afraid daddy will have a heart attack, the victim starts thinking, instead of, how do I get this monster out of my house? Crazy makers discount your reality. No matter how important your deadline or how critical your work trajectory at that moment, crazy makers will violate your needs. They may act as though they hear your boundaries and will respect them, but in practice, act is the operative word. Crazy makers are the people who call you at midnight or 6 a.m. saying, I know you asked me to not call you at this time, but... <laughs> crazy makers are the people who drop by unexpectedly to borrow something you can't find or don't want to lend them, 
Even better, they call and ask you to locate something they need and then fail to pick it up. I know you're on a deadline, they say, but this will only take a minute. That is your minute. Crazy makers spend your time and money. If they borrow your car, they return it late with an empty tank. Their travel arrangements always cost you time or money. They demand to be met in the middle of your workday at an airport miles from town. I didn't bring taxi money, they say when confronted with, but I'm working. Crazy makers triangulate those they deal with. Because crazy makers thrive on energy, your energy, they set people against one another in order to maintain their own power position dead center. And that's where they can feed most directly upon the negative energies that they stir up. So-and-so was telling me you didn't get to work on time today, the crazy maker wave relay. And you obligingly get mad at so-and-so and miss the fact that the crazy maker has used hearsay to set you off-kilter emotionally. Crazy makers are expert blamers. Nothing goes wrong that goes wrong is ever their fault. And to hear them tell it, the fault is usually yours. If you hadn't cashed that child support check, I would have never bounced. One crazy making ex-husband told his struggling for serenity former spouse. Crazy makers create dramas, but seldom where they belong. Crazy makers are often blocked creatives themselves. Afraid to effectively tap into their own creativity, they are loath to allow that same creativity to others. It makes them jealous. It makes them threatened. It makes them dramatic at your expense. Devoted to their own agendas, crazy makers impose these agendas on others. In dealing with a crazy maker, you are dealing always with the famous issue of figure and ground. In other words, whatever matters to you becomes trivialized into mere backdrop for the crazy maker's personal plight. Do you think that they love me? They call to ask you when you are trying to pass the bar exam or get your husband home from the hospital. Crazy makers hate schedules, except their own. In the hands of a crazy maker, time is a primary tool for abuse. If you claim a certain block of time is your own, your crazy maker will find a way to fight you for that time to mysteriously need things, aka you, just when you need to be alone and focus on the task at hand. I stayed up until three last night. I can't drive the kids to school. The crazy maker will spring on you in the morning. You yourself must leave early for a business breakfast with your boss. Crazy makers hate order. Chaos serves their purpose. When you begin to establish a place that serves you and your creativity, your crazy maker will abruptly invade that space with projections of their own. What are all these papers, all this laundry on top of my work table, you ask? Oh, I decided to sort my college papers to start looking for matches to my socks. And of course, crazy makers deny that they are crazy makers. They go for the jugular. I'm not what's making you crazy, your crazy maker may say when you point out a broken promise or a piece of sabotage. It's just that we have a rotten sex life. If crazy makers are that destructive, what are we doing involved with them? The answer, to be brief but brutal, is that we are crazy ourselves and we are that self-destructive. As blocked creatives, we are willing to go to almost any length to remain blocked. As frightening and abuses of life with crazy makers are, we find it far less threatening than the challenge of creative life of our own. What would happen then?
what would we be like? Very often, we fear that if we let ourselves be creative, we will become crazy makers ourselves and abuse those around us. Using this fear as our excuse, using this fear as our excuse, we continue to allow others to abuse us. If you are involved now with a crazy maker, it is very important that you admit this fact. Admit that you are being used and admit that you are using your own abuser. Your crazy maker is a block you chose for yourself to deter you from your own trajectory. As much as you are being exploited by your crazy maker, you too are using that person to block your creative flow. If you're involved in a tortured tango with a crazy maker, stop dancing to their tune. Pick up a book on codependency or get yourself to a 12-step program for a relationship addiction. The next time you catch yourself saying or thinking, they are driving me crazy, ask yourself what creative work you are trying to block by your involvement. This is a big, big, big one. Um, I think that the biggest one is that we are so often used to delegitimatizing our own experience and looking for external validation. And if we are afraid of that validation because of what truth it will tell us, then we will not go to people for this validation who will actually help us, right? We'll go right to the crazy maker and they will gaslight us. We kind of, we have a term for this now, right? When someone says, no, that's not me, that's you. And in, in a way, yes, being engaged with it is us. It's our choice. But there's also recognition that it is not so easy to become unentangled from this. So, you know, part of this is recognizing, okay, like, how can I turn the poison into nectar? How can I hold the truth, the core energy of this experience or non-experience if you're avoiding and come into a place where I can recognize that I have power. I can recognize that I have autonomy. I can recognize that I have choice. Because it is an addiction at some point, right? It's a very interesting one. And now on to the next chapter. Or the next part of this chapter, anyways. Skepticism is our next little diddle in this. Now that we've talked about the barrier to recovery others can present, let us look at the inner enemy we harbor ourselves. Perhaps the greatest barrier for any of us as we look for an expanded life is our own deeply held skepticism. This might be called the secret doubt. It does not seem to matter whether we are officially believers or agnostics. We have our doubts about all of this creator and creativity stuff and those doubts are very powerful. Unless we air them, They can sabotage us. Many times in trying to be good sports, we stuff our feelings of doubt. And we need to stop doing that and explore them instead. Boiled down to their essentials, the doubts go something like this. Okay, so I started writing the morning pages and I seem more awake and alert in my life. So what? It's just a coincidence. Okay, so I've started feeling the well and taking my artist on a date and I do notice that I'm cheering up a little. So what? It's just coincidental. 
Okay, so now I'm beginning to notice that the more I let myself explore the possibility of there being some power for good, the more I notice lucky coincidence turning up in my life. So what? I can't believe I'm really being led. That's just too weird. The reason we think it's weird to imagine an unseen helping hand is that we still doubt that it's okay for us to be creative. With this attitude firmly entrenched, we not only look all gift horses in the mouth, but we also swat them on the rump to get them out of our lives as fast as possible. When Mike began his creative recovery, he let himself admit that he wanted to make films. Two weeks later, through a series of coincidences, he found himself in film school with his company paying for it. Did he relax and enjoy this? No. (laughs) He told himself that film school was distracting him from his real job of finding another job. And so he gave up filmmaking to look for another job. Two years later, remembering this incident, Mike can shake his head at himself. When the universe gave him what he wanted, he gave the gift right back. Eventually, he did let himself learn filmmaking, but he made it a lot harder on himself than the universe may have intended. One of the things worth noting in creative recovery is our reluctance to take seriously the possibility that the universe just might be cooperating with our new and expanded plans. We've gotten brave enough to try recovery, but we don't want the universe to really pay attention. We still feel too much like frauds to handle some success. When it comes, we want it to go. And of course we do. Any little bit of experimenting and self-nurturance is very frightening for most of us. When our little experiment provokes the universe to open a door to, we start shying away. Hey, you, whatever you are, not so fast. I like to think of the mind as a room. And within that room, we keep all of our usual ideas about life. God, what's possible and what's not. The room has a door. And that door is ever so slightly ajar. And outside, we can see a great deal of dazzling light. Out there, in the dazzling light, are a lot of new ideas that we consider too far out for us, and so we keep them out there. The ideas we are comfortable with are in the room with us. The other ideas are out, and we are wired to keep them out. In our ordinary pre-recovery life, when we would hear something weird or threatening, we'd just grab the doorknob and pull the door shut fast inner work triggering after change ridiculous slam the door god bothering to help my own creative recovery slam synchronicity supporting my artist with serendipitous coincidence slam 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 now that we are in creative recovery there is another approach that we need to try and to do this we gently set aside our skepticism for later use if we need it And when a weird idea or coincidence whizzes by, we gently nudge the door a little further open. Setting skepticism aside, even briefly, can make for very interesting explorations. In creative recovery, it is not necessary that we change any of our beliefs. It is necessary that we examine them. More than anything else, creative recovery is an exercise in open-mindedness. Again... Picture your mind as that room with the door slightly ajar. Nudging the door open a bit more is what makes for open-mindedness. Begin this week to consciously practice opening your mind.
this is the last subchapter in week two. And it's called attention. Very often, a creative block manifests itself manifests itself as an addiction to fantasy. Rather than working or living in the now, we spin our wheels and indulge in daydreams of could have, would have, and should have. One of the great misconceptions about the artistic life is that it entails great swaths of aimlessness. The truth is that a creative life involves great swaths of attention. Attention is a way to connect and survive. Flora and Fauna reports, I used to call the long, winding letters to my grandmother. The forsythia is starting this morning and I saw my first robin. The roses are holding even in this heat. The sumac has turned in that little maple down by the mailbox. My Christmas cactus is getting ready. I followed my grandmother's lifelong home movie, a shot of this and a shot of that, spliced together with no pattern I could ever see. Dad's cough is getting worse. The little Shetland looks like she'll drop her full early. Joanne is back at the hospital with Anna. We named the new boxer Trixie and she likes to sleep in my cactus bed. Can you imagine? I could imagine. Her letters made it that easy. Life through Grandma's eyes was a series of small miracles. The wild tiger lilies under the cottonwoods in June. The quick lizard scooting under the grave river rock she admired for its satiny finish. Her letters clocked the seasons of the year and her life. She lived until she was 80, and the letters came until the very end. When she died, it was a suddenly utter Christmas cactus. Here today and gone tomorrow. She left behind her letters and her husband of 62 years. Her husband, my grandfather, Daddy Howard, an elegant rascal with gambler's smile and a loser's luck, had made and lost several fortunes, the last of them permanently. He drank them away, gambled them away, tossed them away the way she threw crumbs at her birds. He squandered life's big chances the way she savored the small ones. That man, my mother would say. My grandmother lived with that man in tiled Spanish houses and trailers and a tiny cabin halfway up the mountain and a railroad flat and finally in a house made out of ticky-tack where they all looked just the same. I don't know how she stands, my mother would say, furious with my grandfather for some new misadventure. She meant she didn't know why. And the truth is, we all know how she stood it. She stood it by standing knee-deep in the flow of life and paying close attention. My grandmother was gone before I learned the lesson her letters were teaching me. Survival lies in sanity, and sanity lies in paying attention. Yes, her letter said, Dad's cough is getting worse. We have lost the house. There is no money and no work. But the tiger lilies are blooming. The lizard has found that spot of sun. And the roses are holding despite the heat. My grandmother knew what a painful life it taught her. Success or failure, the truth of a life really has little to do with its quality. The quality of life is in proportion always to the capacity for delight. The capacity for delight is the gift of paying attention. In a year when a long and rewarding love affair was lurching graciously away from the center of her life, the writer May Sarton kept a journal of solitude. 
and then she records coming home from a particularly painful weekend with her lover entering her empty house i was stopped by the threshold of my study by a ray on a korean chrysanthemum lighting it up like a spotlight deep red petals and chinese yellow center seeing it was like getting a transfusion of autumn light it is no accident that may sarton uses the word transfusion the loss of her lover was a wound and in her responses to that chrysanthemum in the act of paying attention sarton's healing began the reward for attention is always healing it may begin as healing of a particular pain the lost lover, the sickly child, the shattered dream. But what is healed, finally, is the pain that underlies all pain. The pain that we are all, as Rilke phrases it, unutterably alone. More than anything else, attention is an act of connection. And I learned this the way I've learned most things, quite by accident. When my first marriage blew apart, I took a lonely house in the Hollywood Hills. My plan was simple. I would weather my loss alone. I would see no one, and no one would see me, until that worst part of the pain was over. I would take long, solitary walks, and I would suffer. As it happened, I did take those walks, but they did not go as planned. Two curves up the road behind my house, I met a grey-striped cat. This cat lived in a vivid blue house with a large sheepdog she clearly disliked. I learned all this despite myself in a week's walking. We began to have a little visit, that cat and I, and then long talks of all that we had in common, lonely women. Both of us admired an extravagant salmon rose that had wandered across a neighboring fence. Both of us liked watching the lavender float of jacanda blossoms as they shook loose from their moorings. Alice, I had heard her called inside one afternoon, would bat at them with her paw. By the time the jacarands were done, an unattractive slatted fence had been added to contain the rose garden. By then I had extended my walks a mile farther up and added to my fellowship other cats, dogs, and children. And by the time the salmon rose disappeared behind its fence, I had found a house higher up with a walled Moorish garden and a vitriolic parrot I grew fond of colorful, opinionated, highly dramatic. He reminded me of my ex-husband. Pain had become something more valuable. Experience. Writing about attention, I see that I've good, written a good deal about pain, and this is no coincidence. It may be different for others, but pain is what it took to teach me to pay attention. In times of pain, when the future is too terrifying to contemplate and the past too painful to remember, I have learned to pay attention to right now. The precise moment I was in was always the only safe place for me. Each moment taken alone was always bearable. In the exact now, we are all, always, alright. Yesterday the marriage may have ended. Tomorrow the cat may die. The phone call from the lover for all my waiting may not ever come, but just at the moment, just now, that's all right. I am breathing in and out. And realizing this, I begin to notice that each moment was not without its beauty. 
the night that my mother died, I got the call, took my sweater, and set up the hill behind my house. A great snowy moon was rising behind the palm trees, and later that night floated above the garden, washing the cactus silver. When I think now of my mother's death, I remember that snowy moon. The poet William Meredith has observed that the worst that can be said of man is that he did not pay attention. And when I think of my grandmother, I remember her gardening, one small brown breast slipping unexpectedly free from the halter top of the little print dress she made for herself each summer. I remember her pointing down the steep slope from the home she was about to lose to the cottonwoods in the wash below. The peonies like them for their shade, she said. I like them because they go all silvery and they're green. Before I end today's episode, I want to share one of my favorite tasks. Um, basically, you draw a circle and you split that ter- circle into six different categories health, work, pleasure, and play, etc. etc. And from the most inner point of the circle being zero to the outer edge being 100. You place a dot for how much energy, how much fulfillment you're putting into each of these places in your life. And then you connect all the dots and you see where there's balance and where there's imbalance. It's very simple. It's a very easy thing to come back to and to continue creating. It ends up looking like a kind of spider's web. And it is a deeply profound way to see what in your life you are willing to give attention to what in your life you're willing to give way to. Mm. So I hope that in recovering a sense of identity you recognize who you are. Maybe why you are. Or at least maybe why you aren't. What you feel that you are and know that you are. And also have a better idea of what in your life you want to pay attention to. I'll catch you next week with the next episode. And probably a few places in between. Hope you have a really wonderful day. That when you're listening to this, the world is treating you kindly. And I love you. Thank you for being here. If you want to find more of what I'm doing, you can find me on Instagram at Alter of a Cowgirl or on my personal gram, Instagram at Cowgirl Oracle and also my website forestgreenworld.com Thanks for listening. Have a great day. And I'm wishing you well. <laughs>